Esther chapter 4. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Over to you. Man, good morning, everybody. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this is the last time you're going to see me preach for like a month. So I'm going to take some sabbatical time. I am uh, very excited, but I'm also excited about this sermon, um, which is entitled, If I Perish, I Perish. If I Perish, I Perish. Because, you know, why not just go out lighthearted <laughs> on my last sermon? <laughs> um, Nancy, Nancy and I were hanging out yesterday, and um, she started, uh, she showed me this article, uh, Vox, was it Vox, Vox article, um, about extreme altruism, and what is it that causes people to do otherwise insane things, like break open a car to rescue somebody on the side of the freeway, or run into a burning building, and they'd done this scientific study that had interviewed um, thousands of people who had won awards, put their life at risk, and done these otherwise insane things. And what they noticed in common, there was a common thread. Most of the people said, I didn't have time to think about it. I just ran into the burning building. I heard the scream. I saw this thing, and I just ran and did it. I didn't have time to process what was happening. And they said there's another thing they found out. Most people, when they actually pause, think about it, end up not doing it, end up not doing heroic acts. And what we see in this passage with Esther is actually the complete opposite. Esther, all she has is time to think about it. She thinks about it, she grieves over it, she fasts, and then she steps in to do something incredibly 
heroic. And I think one of the questions we have to ask is, what can grow someone to live that kind of altruism, that radical altruism out, when it's not just in a moment without thinking, but, but when others would shrink away? What would cause Esther to run into the burning building, so to speak, after having thought about it? And we've been talking about Esther for about three weeks. And um, we've talked about how she was a little Jewish orphan girl that had been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And the people of the Jewish, uh, uh, basically the Jewish people had been sectioned away and exiled over to the Persian Empire. So now here they are under the rule of, of King Xerxes. And King Xerxes has divorced his wife. She was too bold. She stood up to him. Uh, she stood up to his tyranny, and so he divorced her, and he found Esther. And he married her, and she's this beautiful young Jewish girl, but Esther hid her identity as a Jew, and she was far more compliant than Queen Vashti, the former queen. And as a result, Xerxes made her his queen. And we saw that like almost everybody, when they read the first three chapters of Esther, is really kind of annoyed with her. Like on the very liberal side, the more feminist perspective, they're like, we like Vashti a lot better because she stood up to the man and Esther's just compliant and she just like cowers down. But on the very conservative side and the traditionalist side, they're annoyed with Esther too because she, she doesn't stand up like Daniel and other people in exile did for her right. She didn't declare her faith boldly in the king's court. Instead, she shrinks back. She hides the fact that she's a Jew, and she sleeps with somebody who's not her husband, and she breaks all these mosaic laws, and through a series of compromises in her faith, she rises to power. And now she finds herself the queen of the greatest empire in the world at this time. And she finds herself right in the center of power in the palace. And that's kind of where we find the, the story, where we engage with the story so far. Pretty interesting, right? Here's the thing. The book asks us a fascinating question. Here's the question. In ambiguous situations, socially ambiguous, culturally ambiguous, morally ambiguous situations, like Esther faced, does God still work with us? Can he still work with us? Will he still work with us? Because we have this like, thought, I think, that God just God will work with us to the degree that we're willing to work with him, to the degree that we live these moral lives and we walk uprightly. And if we don't do that, maybe he won't work with us. And this text we read will deal with this if, if we notice three things. The three points today are life in the palace, peril in the palace, and purple, uh, purple, purple in the palace. <laughs> Purpose in the palace. So the importance of life in the palace the intense peril and danger of living in the palace, and how you can learn to live in the palace with greatness, like Esther eventually did in purpose. So are you guys ready? Yeah. Point number one, the first paragraph in this passage, verse six, Mordecai is in sackcloth. And he's wearing the dramatic clothing, and he's down in the middle of the city square by the king's gate trying to get Esther's attention. And the gate, you got to understand this, it's the king's gate. The gate is not the gate to the city, but the gate to the palace. If you understand, Susa was the, like, the Persian empire that ruled the entire world. Susa is the capital city right now. And, and in the middle of that city, on the western side, about 120 feet up, is the citadel, the palace. The, uh, chapter 1 calls it the Acropolis, which means the high polis or high city, right? This is 
the city within the city where all of the laws are passed, where all the culture flows from, where the king lives and all the government officials live there. And so there's a gate within the city of Susa that leads up to the high city. And that's where we find Mordecai trying to get Esther's attention at the, at the gate to this high palace. And to be in there was to be in the very pinnacle of power. To be in there was to be in the center of everything in the world where everything flowed from, all the, uh, the, the laws and all the ideas that shaped culture and shaped all of life around the entire world was happening right there, and that's where Esther was. And she had climbed all the way up to the top there. I mean, imagine if you could take like Washington, D.C. and Hollywood and Harvard and kind of squeeze them together. That's where Esther lived this time. And that's why Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and, and doing dramatics and trying to grab her attention because he says in verse, eight and, and verse 14, you're up there, you've made it, you're in the center of power. And, and from what we learned last week when Kenny spoke, which by the way, if you didn't hear it, go back and listen to that sermon, it was great. From that palace, culture was flowing, laws were flowing, and powerful forces had come together and coalesced inside the Persian Empire to destroy the Jewish people. And those powerful forces has gotten the king to make this decree. And the decree was basically two things. Jewish people are bad for our culture is what the decree said. Therefore, on this certain date, at this certain time, all of you guys, we want to destroy the Jewish people. We want to wipe them out. It gave, it, the date had been set and, and the time had been set and anybody could go on that day to their neighbor and annihilate them and plunder their wealth and take it for themselves. Can you imagine? It's 11 months away, and everybody's waiting, like somebody on death row just waiting for the execution day. That's the situation Mordecai is in. And so he comes up to Esther, and he says, Esther, look, because of where you are, because of your position in the palace, your place, your royal position, you have to use every ounce of cultural influence and social capital you can to bring justice to this brokenness around us. Like, wake up, Esther, you know? Get woke. What are you doing up there in the palace? You have to do something. And here's the first thing we learn, is that God uses everyone for his work in the world. God uses everyone, not just people inside the church, not just pastors, not just missionaries, but also people out there in the secular public cultural institutions. He uses all people for his work, both people inside and outside, both the laity and the clergy, both the men and the women. He uses them all. Why? Because God's vision for the future is so big. It takes everyone, and he uses all of them. Let me put it this way. If you get to the end of the book of Revelation, and the angel leads John the Revelator out to see this vision of what is to come, what do we see? What is God's ultimate goal for the world. I'll tell you what we don't see. We don't see a bunch of disembodied spirits flying up into the clouds and little naked baby angels with harps. It's beautiful in Renaissance paintings. That's not actually what heaven is. The goal is not just individual salvation, that we're all converted and we fly off one day. The goal, what we see at the end of time in the book of Revelation, is that God his life 
comes down, as it were, into this world and, and changes and cleanses and perfects and restores this material world, creates, it, creates a redeemed material world that's so full of perfection that everything wrong with this world, all of it, is healed. Just pa- pause for a second and think today as we sit here on a Sunday morning in moderate air conditioning. We are in the air-conditioned city, though, so... Um, Think about all the brokenness that's around us today that needs healing. Everything you can think of. You know, one of the things that needs healing is our relationship with God, right? So what does that take? What is it, how do you heal that? Well, you heal that with what I'm doing, the, the preaching of the good news, right? You need preachers. You need people to proclaim the gospel, to heal it by saying, look, here's what God has said. Here's what God has done. Come to him. So my current job is is to proclaim the good news and help people heal their relationship with God. But that's not enough. Also, the world needs to be healed because our relationships with each other are pretty broken, aren't they? That's why there's racism. That's why there's war. That's why there's violence. That's why there's oppression. That's why there's Senate hearings. That's why there's all kinds of stuff. There's brokenness all around us within our relationships, but also our relationship with nature is broken. That's why there's disease. That's why there's hunger. That's why there's death. And when you look at the end of the book of Revelation, you see the end of history. You'll see God's goal for us is not just that our relationship with him is healed individually, but that the world is healed, the entire world. And that takes not just preachers and missionaries. It takes doctors It takes lawyers, and it takes teachers, and it takes gardeners, and it takes stay-at-home moms, and it takes artists and doctors. It takes everyone. Are we tracking? At this spot in the Bible, we have a perfect picture of that because this is the spot in the Bible where God is restoring his people to Jerusalem, which is a type of that new Jerusalem that's going to come down. And they had been in exile. The Jerusalem had been destroyed. And they'd been led away into Babylonian captivity. And now it's been several years and there's arisen another king, another empire, the Persian empire. And now they've gotten permission to go back and restore Jerusalem. And we look at the story at this point in history to recreate their lives, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. To tell that story, we don't just get one book. We get three. Why do we need three books to tell the story of restoration? Because God's restoration has so many different facets and levels to it, right? So uh, I was reading uh, Ray Bakke, and he was saying, um, pointing out how fascinating this is, that God shows the diversity of people he uses by giving us not one, not two, but three different books to show how he restores his people. So you have the book of Ezra. And who's Ezra? Ezra is a minister of God's word. He's a teacher of the word of God, and he comes back, and he starts to teach the people the ways of God because they've been away in another culture, and they've forgotten, and they need their lives reformed and reshaped by the word of God. But Ezra's not enough. You also have Nehemiah. You guys know Nehemiah? He uses all his managerial skills, right? He's like an urban planner, an urban developer. He's not a preacher like Ezra. He's a guy who's down in the streets, and he's rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem so that economic prosperity can pick up again, so that civic prosperity can pick up again. So without Nehemiah, it it doesn't matter if you just have the word of God. Nobody's going to get out there and actually start building a city and rebuilding culture. But then here we also have the book we're studying in, the book of Esther. And Esther's not in a congregation somewhere. And Esther's not even down in the streets rebuilding. She's up in the highest court of the land. 
And she's working for a more just social order. She's working for social justice. That's what we see with Esther. And you have to have all three of those things, otherwise nothing would have happened. You have to have male and female. You have to have lay and clergy. You have to have people working for spiritual maturity. You have to have people working for economic flourishing. And you have to have people working for a more just social order. Are we tracking? Everybody. God uses everybody. So do you see how important it is for believers to be involved in all the areas of life, living out their faith and bringing restoration? So let me just put it like this. If you live in a major city, in a major cultural hub, you are in the palace. You're in the palace. Think about it. Think about where we live, the air-conditioned city. Eighth largest city in America, second largest city in California, second only to, guess, L.A., yeah, of course, right? And then I read this, and this is really interesting. San Diego's on track to grow by... 50% in the next 35 years, which means we'll be at 2 million people. That's huge. Huge. In the next 35 years. (laughs) Where will they live? That's why we need builders. (laughs) Hey. Love you, Tom. So, but here's here's the deal. When you think about that, right, here's something interesting also I read, you know, for being such a big city. We're the third, we're rated on bestplaces.net, the third best city for dating. So I'm just saying, like, (laughs) there's no need to go anywhere else, you know? There's more and more opportunities showing up. So if you're on the dating scene, you don't need to leave. I know you say, well, what's places one and two? I want to know that. You got to look that up on your own. I'm not going to tell you because we want you to stay here in San Diego, okay? But we're also the fifth wealthiest city in America. So think about America, the number one global influence on the economy. Number one, number one influence on global culture. We're the fifth wealthiest city in that megaplex uh, called America. This year, the median household income in San Diego is $81,222. By comparison, when I graduated in 2000, it was $45,000, almost double, right? But even in wealthy cities where there's plenty of resources, think about this, 15% in San Diego live below the poverty line. San Diego is the third largest homeless population in America, second largest per capita, third largest in general. So fifth wealthiest, third largest homeless population. See the disparity there? See the difference? Not only that, we have the busiest international border in the world, San Isidro, with abject poverty just seconds on the other side. San Diego is a cultural hub. If you're living in San Diego, it's a major city and a cultural hub. You are living in the palace. And you say, oh, man, no, you you don't understand. I live in a van down by the river. (laughs) You know, I have this tiny little cramped apartment. I'm barely making it. Or, or maybe some of you are like, no, you know, we own a home. We're doing okay. But there's a lot of people a lot more wealthy than us. I mean, we're not really that influential, Vince, you know. Well, let me propose that maybe you're not at the very top of the palace. But the palace had different rings and different levels, didn't it? Culture still flowed from there. Law still flowed from there. If you live within the palace, you are more influential than you know. 
And the best way I can explain this is I have a, a good friend who's a pastor on the other side of the border. And uh, he said, um, man, your church in downtown, you guys have so much power and so much influence. You have more than you think. All those people in your church in the center of the city, they're educated, they're wealthy, they're connected, they have cultural clout and abilities and skill sets. The possibilities are endless. And all those people may not feel like it, but they have a huge amount of spiritual and intellectual and relational capital, whether they know it or not. Tell them to help us out. And he wasn't saying it as a bad thing. He was saying it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we have opportunity to use our power and use our possessions and use our positions, not just for ourselves, not just for our own good, but for the good of the world. And he's saying we need people in the palace to use their royal position to take care of people down at the king's gate who are in need. And that's what social justice is, isn't it? Using what you have, using what God's given you to help those who don't have as much. In other words, my friend is telling us to ask ourselves, are we in a position that we're in right now for such a time as this? Are we using our connections, our currency, our, our clout for those in need around us? And I remember when he's telling me this, immediately I'm feeling a little annoyed and defensive and disagreeing in my mind. Like, he has no idea the problems some of the people in my church have. Like, what's he saying? Um, I mean, because I'm from San Diego. I grew up here. I'm a lifer. Probably going to die here, right? And, and you know, there's two kinds of people in San Diego. There's the people that grow up here. And there's the people who move here. But the one thing they both have in common is a lot of them are itching to leave. You notice that? Like, there's a three to five year cycle. People get here, they want to have fun, they want to get that degree, they want to get the job, make those connections, make those friends, build up their resume, and then go back home and live like kings, or go somewhere else and live like kings. Because if you can make it in a major city like San Diego, you can make it anywhere. What's my point? I'm processing what my friend's saying. And there's a lot of us here in San Diego, and I'll include myself, who were not really living for the life of the city. We're not using, we're using the city, we're not serving the city. We're in the city as long as it serves us and serves our interests. Like, we're in the palace. And, and we may not see it deep down in ourselves, but, but we're saying deep down, yeah, I'll stay here, I'll be in this church, I'll, I'll do what I can, I'll do stuff in the city as long as I get my needs met, as long as it's good for my family, as long as I still have opportunity and I can move up the cultural ladder, the corporate ladder, as long as, as long as I can live that SoCal lifestyle, I'll stay here. And that's what my pastor friend is asking us, is the same thing Esther's asking. Are we using our royal position just to serve ourselves, or are we using it to serve the rest of the city? And those in sackcloth down by the king's gate. And then there's this word, perhaps, he says, perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? that maybe it's not just coincidence that you ended up here. Has that thought, have you prayed about that and thought about that? Or did you just assume you could be living anywhere? It's simply coincidental that you ended up here now in this place, in this time. Let me ask you, what if it's not just coincidental? What if what Paul says in Acts 17 is true, that God determines exactly when and where we live? I know you may have pushback, and you're like, dude, what? I'm barely making it here, Vince. I can barely afford it. Do you, you realize how expensive that sunshine tax is? If one thing goes wrong, right, 
If I step out of line, if I lose my job, if anything goes wrong, I'm out of my butt. I'm, I'm back wherever I came from. There's no way. My position is precarious. My position is perilous. So what? You still get the call. You're here in the palace. What is God's purpose for you? God had her there. God has you here. Have you stopped to ask why? I know some of us, we look at ourselves, and like Esther, we say, yeah, but Vince, do you know how I got here? Like, I've got into my position, but I've had to make compromises along the way. I haven't spoken out where I should have spoken out. I've done some shady things. I have some clout now, but I, I don't feel like my conscience is perfectly clear. Do you think Esther's was? Let me put it another way. Maybe you've slept with the king. Maybe you've failed yourself and those impossible standards you hold over your own head. Or maybe you failed someone else. Maybe you failed God. And maybe you feel ashamed. Here's the deal. The story of Esther is coming up to us and telling us it's never too late. God works with Esther, he will work with you. God comes and says, you need to realize where you are. You need to realize the importance of being in the palace. I want to use you if you're willing to hear the call. And in the next paragraph, we're going to talk about the peril in the palace. You say, what's the danger? What's the peril? Look at Esther's response in verse 11. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. You know what she's saying? First of all, she's saying, look, it's a crime. Mordecai, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, it's a crime punishable by death and to go into the king when you weren't called to. And I got here because the last queen was too bold. And now you're telling me to be bold. Like, it's not going to end up well for me if I do that. I'm going to throw everything away. Like, how can, how can you ask me to do that? I was just a poor little orphan girl. Like, I scrimmed and scraped. I've, for everything I have, I had a hard life. And now I finally got something to show for it all. And I'm barely hanging on as it is. And you want me to throw it all away. If I step out of the line, I'll lose my life. And then, and then she says, look at the second thing she says. I haven't gone into the king for 30 days. Read between the lines, right? He's not sleeping alone, right? Her, she's like, you don't understand. My position's precarious. Like, possibly, it might be a sign that he hasn't called me for 30 days that I'm not in his good graces anymore. And that if I do walk in there, he's not going to raise the scepter. That's what's going on. Esther has a protection mentality. She says to Mordecai, you don't know what you're asking me. I could lose everything. And Mordecai responds to her. And he says, of course I know what you're asking, or I know what I'm asking of you. I know some of you say, Vince, you, you don't understand what you're asking me. If I started serving God that radically, if I started living on mission in my city that, that, that radically, that missionally, if I start you know, diving into community that wholeheartedly, if I Really, when that coworker is opening up, if I really drop the Jesus bomb in there, like you realize that could go really south for me, right? 
if I, if I don't do this little shady thing, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep my job. Everybody else in the company does it. I have to do it. I might get so involved in stuff that I can't actually get my work done. I might fall behind in my job. I might lose my power. I might lose my position. I might lose my possessions. I might lose my place in the palace. We're talking about my life here. People come to me all the time and they say, you know, I really, I really wish I had good community. Um, and I say, well, it's not that hard. You know, just open your life up. Go hang out with people. Get involved in a gospel community on mission. You know, start to build relationships. Invite people into your home. Invite them into your life. It's not about doing all these additional things. It's about being more intentional with the things you do. So everybody gets a lunch break. Meet somebody on your lunch break. Go work out with somebody. You work out, right? Like, there's, there's ways to do this. And you know what I hear time and time again? Just don't have space for it right now in my life. I don't, I don't think I have the emotional energy to be able to meet somebody on my lunch break. I just need that space, you know, because we're working so hard. We're like robots. We just tune out, and we just go, go, go. We're exhausted. In other words, I want community. I need community, but I don't have time. I want God. I want more of God in my life, but I don't know if I can wake up that early and pray. I don't have space for it. You know, I want to live for a greater purpose in my life. I want mission so bad. I, I want to live for something more than myself, but I can't take the time off work, you know, to, you know, I got to get my passport. <laughs> These are real conversations, but let me propose to you that you actually may want to do those things, but you don't want them more than the life you're currently living. Because you have to give something up in order to live a new way. You can't, you can't squeeze it all in. Something's got to give. And yes, there's risk involved. There is. So how does Mordecai respond to Esther when she's acting like we do? I love this because this is like the high point of the entire book. Like narratively, theologically, in every way, rhetorically, he says two things to us. You know what he says? He says, if you don't risk losing the palace, you will lose everything. See what he says there? He says, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. So how's he helping Esther with her fear? How's he, she's freaking out, we're freaking out. How's he help? What's he say? He says, if you do risk losing the palace, you might lose everything. But if you don't risk losing the palace, you will lose everything, right? And it seems a little bit, how can I say it? Brutal, right? Tame Mordecai. Like, comfort her a little bit, dude. Empathize. Empathy. No empathy skills here for Mordecai. None. It's just brutal. And then he says, he goes positive, and he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for times such as this. Think about this. Do, do you see where you're placed right now? Maybe you're here for some greater purpose than you thought. And he pushes her out of her protection mentality, and he pushes her to see her purpose. You know, the only thing that's going to break us out of our fear-based protection mentality is when we see a greater purpose that God has for our life. And that brings us to point number three. What do we do about it? If we know the palace is important, we should be here. It's also perilous and dangerous. What should we do? How should we live and Mordecai gives us two principles, and they're very powerful. The first thing he says, 
is unless you risk the clout, the credentials, the connections, the currency you have, you may not think it's much. You may, you may be in denial, right? You have a lot. You have a lot more influence than you think you have. Instead of seeing that all as just a way for you to further your own position, but now seeing that as a way of you serving the people outside the palace and serving the rest of the world, unless you see it that way, the palace has become your prison. Your possessions have begun to possess you. They own you. The city's already devoured you. There's no you left. You're dead already. You'd better be ready to risk it because if you're not willing to risk it, it's devoured you. You know why? Because the palace is all about performance. Think about it. Why was Esther there of all the people? Because of what she offered to the king. She was beautiful. She had beauty. She had her performance. And you and I are evaluated in San Diego and in any city the same way based on what we do. That's why, and we say it here all the time, that's why the first question after somebody learns your name is, what do you do? What do you contribute to our palace? Right? What is it that you uniquely bring to the table? That question shows like what we contribute maybe to the palace, but also shows like who the palace values us as. Right? Being in the palace is all about performance. And the problem is, if you live that way, it will eventually swallow you whole. There won't be any you left. Eventually, you'll just become what you offer to the machine. Your net worth will become your self-worth. Right? Your power begins to take you over. Your resume begins to take you over. Your career begins to take you over. All those ways you project your identity out there to make people believe a certain thing about you becomes the thing you start believing about yourself. Because that's how you perform in the palace. To live in the palace is to get your identity from your performance. And a side note, I, just, I think that's why there's shady ethics. I think that's why there's ambiguity. I think it's the reason why we don't speak up when we're supposed to speak up. That's the reason why we fudge in the numbers. And that's the reason why we tell white lies and, and take shortcuts and on and on it goes. Why? Because we know that we've got to perform in order to keep our place in the palace. It affects our time. It affects our money. That's why we're scared to talk about money, right? Look, it's like, <laughs> like when it comes to giving, you may give a little here, a little there, but 10%, 20% radical giving, giving to the needs around us and people outside the palace, I don't want to do that. When people are talking about it, we get quiet, we get afraid. Why? Because it jeopardizes their place in the palace. And that's why Mordecai is saying, if you're unwilling to risk your place in the palace, it's already won. The palace is taking you over. It's eating you. You're the tail, and it's the dog, and it's wagging you. The only way you can break free to not identify yourself with your position in the palace is to not identify yourself with your performance. How do you get an identity that's not rooted in the palace, but is rooted in something else besides the palace? And the answer to that is, it's hinted at, even in the text. It's this word, grace. The last thing he says here to her, he says, and who knows whether you've come to royal position for such a time as this. And that, that word, come to, is a Hebrew word that we call a hiffle, right? It's a hiffle verb form, which means it's passive. So it can also be translated, who knows whether you were brought to your royal position because of this. What's Mordecai saying to her? He's saying, Esther, you got here by grace. 
It wasn't like, did you make yourself beautiful? Who made you beautiful? It wasn't given to you. The door of opportunity wasn't something you opened or kicked open. It was open for you. I know a lot of us when we hear that, we're like, whoa, dude, yeah, but you don't know me, like my life, my story, how hard I've worked to get here, how much sacrifice I've made, how much schooling I've gone through. You don't know the hours. You don't know the sweat. You don't know the turmoil laying in bed at night, sweating which job I should take. And I've, listen, I've worked for this. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps, which none of us know what they are because none of us wear cowboy boots. Dakota moved back. We love you, Dakota. And he's the only person who ever wore boots at New City. So I'm going to start a movement. I'm asking you, who gave you the talents? Who gave you the connections to even open that up? Who put breath in your body? I love what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy when he's sending them out. And he's talking to them, by the way, about social justice with the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. And what's he say to them in Deuteronomy? He says, says something. Where'd it go? Yeah, Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You work with talents you did not earn. You walk through doors you did not open. They were open for you. Everything you have is a matter of grace. And once Esther began to realize that Esther began to respond to that grace. Look what she says. Verse 16, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go into the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish wasn't just a momentary run into the fire to rescue the screaming person. She got there with agony in turmoil and fasting in her soul. She thought about it long and hard. If I perish, I perish. Wasn't just some apathetic response like we hear all the time in SoCal. Hey, it is what it is. You know? If I perish, I perish. That's not what it is. It's a passionate, compassionate, grace-filled response to the situation that she's thought long and hard about. And here's how we know. Look at the change in her. Look at the little girl, the, this sweet, shy little girl who wouldn't stand up to anybody in the first three chapters, and look at who she's becoming. <laughs> I mean, she, she never wanted to rock the brooch. She never wanted to ruffle feathers, and all of a sudden, she starts to give orders. She tells Mordecai, hey, listen, okay, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go fast, all right? Get everybody. They're going to fast. Me and my handmaids will fast for three days, and then I'm going to go into the king. And you know what? If I perish, I perish. But she's, she's like, whoa, Esther. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Why? Because she finally realizes her purpose. She finally sees the grace by which she's come to her royal position. And that grace, that realization of grace changes her. Grace changes Esther. She's not the little compromising, scared, sigh little girl anymore. She's a queen. It's like she put the crown on finally. And I, I know that's inspiring, but we can't end the sermon there, although it's tempting. Because that's inspiring, right? You see that in Esther, you're like, man, be like Esther. Realize your purpose. Step out. Be the change you want to see in the world. 
let's pray. Right? <laughs> now, if I ended there, it'd actually be bad for us. Because there's a danger that some of us might actually be inspired by Esther's example and go out and try to do what she's done. Some of you right now are saying, man, I'm not going to look at my position anymore. I'm not going to look at my social capital and, and my relational capital like that anymore. I'm just going to use it for the life of the world. Instead, I'm just going to make a change. I'm going to be the change. I'm going to fight for justice. Yes. And some of you may be inspired that way because Esther is inspiring. But I've been thinking about inspiration lately and how in some ways it's just like reverse guilt tripping. Um, I watched this commercial um, popped up on YouTube and it's uh, the Nike commercial. Just do it. Right? And it's the people, like they lace on the shoes and they're running down by the boardwalk, you know, and they're sweaty. And, and it's like, oh, I need to be sweaty. I need to have Nikes. <laughs> I need to shed these pounds. So I bought some Nikes. <laughs> I ran down to the boardwalk. And like 10 minutes in, I'm like, <gasps> just <laughs> gasping for air. The inspiration lasted about as long as uh, until the perspiration set in, right? And, and so that's one of the things that can happen to us with inspiration, right? It motivates us for a little while, but can it take us the whole way? And, and others of you, you're looking at me, you're like, weak. Like, come on, man. Like, you guys are the ones, you watch those commercials, and you go out, and you buy the Nikes, and you do just do it. And then you do become very obnoxious to the rest of us. Like, I did it. Why can't you? You Hashtag CrossFit for life. (laughs) Stepping on toes. It's funny, right? But in both cases, and here's the point, in both cases, whether failure or success, here's the problem. We're still bound by the palace. We haven't really left the palace because we're still getting our identity from our performance, our good performance or our bad performance. And we're shrinking back in shame when we fail or rising up and swelling with pride when we succeed. Either way, you're still going to find your identity in your performance as long as you just look to Esther as an example. Getting that good day, bad day Christianity, you know? Uh, I wasn't a good Christian today. It's become all about what you do for God, not what he's done for you. An example, even a great example, is crushing because it's an inaccessible standard, especially as we keep reading through Esther over the next few weeks and you see some of the other stuff she does. You're going to be like, man, I want to be like Esther. But it'll crush you. There is another way, though. Let me, let me tell you how to change. How do we look at Esther? I want to suggest, what if you didn't look at Esther as an example, but you looked at Esther as a signpost, as a pointer? You say, okay, pointing to what? Well, Think about this, two things. Esther saved her people with two things, identification and mediation. She identified with her people. She didn't take the safe way out. She went in, she outed herself as, I am a Jewish person, and she said, if you're going to punish them, you're going to punish me, I'm going to take their punishment, right? She came under their condemnation. She risked her life and said, if I perish, I perish. And because... She identified with her people. Then she could mediate. She could go before the throne. She could stand in front of the king, and she could receive favor there. She could then impute that favor to her people, right? She saved her people through identification and mediation. Who's that remind you of? 
Jesus lived in the ultimate palace. He had the Son of God, beauty beyond belief. He had ultimate glory, and he left it, and no one had to come in sackcloth and ashes down by the gate and do theatrics and convince him to do it. Nobody had to to put pressure on him. Philippians 2 said he had a quality with the Father, but he didn't hold on to it. He emptied himself and came down and identified with us and took our condemnation. Think about this. Jesus didn't do this at the risk of his life. He did it at the cost of his life. Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I'll perish for them. He went to the cross and he died and he was crushed and he made atonement and he paid the price for our sins, for everything we've done, every shady thing we've done, every compromise we've made to come to the place we're at. Every time we didn't step out when we knew we needed to, Jesus Christ came and paid the price for that. He made atonement. And now the Bible says he stands before the throne of the God of the universe and all the favor that he's procured is ours. It's yours. If we believe in him, his status is ours. Now here's what amazes me. If you see Esther as an example and you say, be like Esther, it'll crush you. You'll never live up to it, right? But if you see Jesus as your savior, not an example, but a savior, and you know that you're that valuable to him, and you know the great cost at which he was willing to to, to sacrifice to have you, and you know that your future is that secure in him, that changes your identity. That's your security. That's your value. That's your worth. Suddenly, all the other things that was finding my identity in, in your life, they just become stuff. It's not you anymore. You're not the sum total of your things or what people say about you. Your identity isn't in your performance. Your identity isn't in your place in the palace. You're free. You can use your position and your possessions and your power. You can risk it. You can spend it. You can give it away lavishly. You can lose it. Here's what's amazing. How how was Esther able to do what she did? She saw grace, right? But think about the grace she saw. She saw a little tiny window into a God of grace that had put her where where she belonged and, and, and everything she had was a gift of his grace right? That's a little bit of grace. Do we have more grace than Esther had? Have we seen more of God's grace on this side of the cross? Now, I'm just going to ask this. If she, she did all she did knowing the limited grace she knew, but boy, we know so much more. Like, I don't want this to come off too heavy, but just honestly ask herself, what's our excuse? What is our excuse? If she did what she did, knowing what little she knew of his grace, and we know so much more. We know so much more about our value to him. We know so much more about his grace. We know so much more about our future. What's our excuse? The truth is we we don't have one. We don't have one. And if you now seeing Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, seeing him losing his ultimate place for you, and then and only then will you finally be able, will you finally be free from your place in the palace to really start to bring healing to the world. If you see the words of Jesus when he says, if I perish, I perish, only then will you have freedom from the palace in your life. Only then will you be able to say along with him and really mean it, if I perish, I perish. I'll risk it all. 
I'm willing to give everything away. I'm willing to follow you. Because that is the call. The call to discipleship is the call to walk away from everything else and follow him. You gave everything for me. I'll gladly give everything for you. And then if I perish, I perish becomes the lens through which you see everything differently. And as I close, I'll just bring up these points real quick. First of all, if I perish, I perish is, is the language of calling you to identify with the poor and the powerless and the oppressed of the world. Because as believers, seeing what Jesus has done to identify with people outside the palace is our call. So we say, if I perish, I perish. I, at the risk of going too long, at the risk of boring you, I'm going to read a little excerpt of a sermon because it's pretty awesome. Powerful sermon on this subject by Robert Murray McShane. Uh, this is from 1838, by the way. Scottish minister. And he says this. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray day and night to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made over, all over again in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. But we object. My money's my own. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would we be? Objection. The, the poor, they're, they're undeserving. Christ may have said the same thing about us. They're wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I'll give my life to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Oh, objection. The poor may abuse it. Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth, because Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, and that many would make it an excuse for sinning more yet. He gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. If I perish, I perish is the language of identifying with the poor and the oppressed. That's what Jesus did. Secondly, it's, it's the language of exciting mission. It's the language of mission. You have a unique role in this world. You have a unique shape. God's given you spiritual gifts. God's given you a personality. He's given you different life experiences. And God wants to use that for his glory. There are certain lives only you will ever be able to touch. If I perish, I perish. Are you willing to risk it to follow his call and get messy in the lives of people who are broken and hurting like we were and still are? Thirdly, the language of I perish, I perish is the language of unconditional obedience. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Not, well, I might follow God if it works out for me, if he makes my life better. I was watching this video that popped up on uh, the Facebook feed thing where it's just video after video and you just watch brainlessly. Um, but this one engaged my brain. And it was uh, the measuring of stars and planets. Have you seen one of those? Like, it was showing the smallest planets in our solar system, and then they were like filling the screen, but then they get smaller compared to the next one, and smaller next compared to the next one. And finally, it got to like Jupiter, and then Earth is like, you can't even see it anymore, but then it gets to the sun, and then our sun shrinks down to the size of like a dot on the screen next to the next biggest sun. 
but then there's bigger sons. And it just keeps going, and you're like, this is, how long is this video? And it's like, and then it goes to galaxies. But then it shows how the galaxies, our galaxy is small, and it's just a speck of dust in the middle of all these other galaxies. And that's just, my gosh, that's, that's, that's nothing compared to the universe. And then they start talking about the multiverse, and you're like, okay, blah, blah, blah. yeah. <laughs> And Scripture says that Christ holds all that together. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, with the word of his power, with his, with his pinky. And he's just sipping on tea, holding the universe together, multiverse together. Let me ask you, is that the kind of person that you hire to be your personal assistant? To give you advice when you need it? Is that the kind of person you say, well, I'll try to figure you out for a while and see whether or not, you know, this whole obedience to you makes me happier, fulfills my life more. Now take your hands off your life. Put your hands in the life of the one who controls everything, who spoke everything into existence, who sustains all things. He's holding your life together whether you realize it or not. Unconditional surrender. Trust him. Give him everything. Lastly, 14 times in this book, that Esther is referred to as Queen Esther. And 13 of them happen after she says, if I perish, I perish. Esther becomes a person of greatness, not by trying to become a person of greatness. And you will become a person of greatness, not by trying to become a person of greatness. That's how people live in the palace. That's that trying, that's performance. You will become a person of greatness by serving the one who said for your sake, I'll perish Father, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of what you've given us and reminding us of what you've spent for us and freeing us from the bondage. We only know this, if, if we understand the gospel and the gospel that we're saved by grace, not by our works, not by our performance. Father, most of us right here live in, in the heart of this palace city and in, in the high city. We get our identity out of our performance. It, it's just, it's a default. We just go back to it on Monday morning without even thinking. We're in the prison of the palace. I pray that you would save us and free us from finding our identity and our performance. And for some of us, that means giving our lives to you for the very first time and knowing that Christ is, is Savior for the first time and, and, and seeing a better story. And we're all meaning makers. We're all hardwired to interpret the facts around us by the stories we tell ourselves. And some of us are seeing this good news gospel as a better story for the first time. For an awful lot of us, we've known that, and yet we're still, to a great degree, in these prisons of the palace. I pray that you would please bring the gospel in these next few moments as we respond. Bring the gospel into our hearts so we can be like your son, Jesus Christ, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray that we wouldn't just run and try to do good things out of momentary inspiration. But that long and hard, we would think about it and count the cost, as Jesus said. A wise man counts the cost before he builds a house. And that we would begin to build a foundation for a life of service. 
and sacrifice, a life that says, I'm ready to give all to the one who gave his all for me. If I perish, I perish, but I'm throwing my life wildly into your hands right now. Do what you want with me. I know you can tell a better story. I'm handing the pen over. I'm not going to keep trying to write my own story anymore. And in this moment, Lord, I pray that we would find that you are all we need. You're more than enough. As we come down here and take communion and remember your body broken for us and your blood spilled for us, we remember that your righteousness is enough. Your performance was more than enough. I don't need to perform one more moment to get anything by it. And your blood was spilled to pardon all of my sins, all of my compromises. So now we come to you in worship and in radical devotion and say, do more with our lives than we ever could. We love you. Once again, I give my life to you. Help me to remember it on Monday morning. Help me to remember that we're taking part in the beautiful picture of the restoration of all things, even if our work is just a signpost of what you're going to do one day. We give all this to you as worship in Jesus' name.